You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word of truth and the spirit of truth to guide us into the truth. Lord, the word is powerful. It's been changing lives since it was given. And in these last days especially, people need to hear your word. And you have appointed us as your last day church to proclaim the word clearly to the world in preparation for the coming of Jesus. We ask that you would guide us in this, guide us in this class, Lord, today and throughout this week. May it give us a more confidence in uh, uh, the biblical foundations of our faith. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I said it before, but I want to reiterate it. I don't know if I said it exactly the way I wanted to say it. Our purpose through this whole week, when you have a confidence in what you know from the Word, even if you don't know, like, oh, where was that text again? It cha- it's a game changer for how you witness. Like, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, I, there, I forgot where the text is, and another thing to say, I didn't even know if there is a text for that. I don't even know if our belief is right on that. You understand the difference? Now, we're talking, we talked a little bit about, we're talking about the Sabbath, but just people balk at the Sabbath because, not because the Bible doesn't say it's the seventh day, not because it's not the easiest thing in the world to bat. Like, when you get objections to the Sabbath, and you're going to see this when we walk through the study, that I've had sometimes, and it's rare, but I've had sometimes where people are like, well, how do you really know what day Saturday is? The, the Sabbath, the Bible Sabbath is? That takes all 30 seconds to answer. I mean, I remember talking to a young man who came to a series of meetings, and I said, look it up in, you know, look it up in the dictionary. And I still remember going back to his house. He had a fiancé who did not want to keep the Sabbath. Remember I told you, application issues. And so I go talk to him, and he starts throwing out these reasons why, well, you know, is it really important to keep the Sabbath? Wasn't it just for the Jews? Yada, yada, yada. And, and I knew, like, the last time I talked to him, you, you know, you can tell when somebody gets it. I knew he had, and, and his name was Dominic. I said, Dominic, listen, we can look at, look at it. In fact, he, he had a list of texts. And if you've done Bible studies, or you have, um, if you've done Bible studies, or you've been in ministry, or whatever else, it's always the same text. You're going to go for Colossians 2, you're going to go Romans 14, we're going to look at some of those today. So you're going to go, there's, there's, there's eight first day texts in the Bible, five of them have to do with the fact that Jesus rose on the first day, so they don't have anything to do with the Sabbath, no, none of them have anything to do with the Sabbath, or change of the Sabbath, but anyway, they're always... So he gives me this list of paper, this list, this piece of paper, this list of texts. He says, well, you know, here. And, and they're just the same old, like, this is textbook. I don't believe the Sabbath because of these. And I knew it wasn't coming from him. Like, somebody wrote down a list of texts and said, ask him about these. So I told him, I said, listen, Dominic. I said, I'll be glad to go over those texts with you. We can do that. But I said, are you really... Do you really question that Saturday's the Sabbath? And I'll never forget, he goes, no, man, he says, no, I looked at, and he's this college kid, and he's just like, no, I looked at, I, re- I looked up before, you told me to look at, in the dictionary, it's there in the dictionary, it says it's Saturday, I looked up this, and I looked up that, and he was just, 
it's so easy to find. So most people, you're not going to get a lot of argument about which day is the Sabbath. It gets into that, what the law has been done away with. Or the covenants. The covenants is a big one. I'm under the new covenant now. So take your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to look at this just very briefly. And I want you to know, but let's get there first. Hebrews is after all the T's in the New Testament. Then you have Hebrews, then you have James and 1 Peter and 2 Peter, so you want to write in between there. Hebrews chapter 8. Now notice what it says starting in verse 6. The Bible says, but now he, speaking of Jesus, in the context of our high priest, incidentally, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Well, that's logical, right? If there wasn't a problem with the first one, don't make another one. Okay? So there was a problem with the Old Covenant. And that problem must have been the law, right? That's the immediate assumption of the Christian world. It was the law. The problem with the Old Covenant was the law. But if you just keep reading, he says, um, verse 8, because finding fault with the law, it says, what does your Bible say? It wasn't a fault with the law. And notice, finding fault with them, the people. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel, the house of Judah, and all the Gentile nations. I want you to notice, Paul is, if most of your Bibles probably have this italicized, right? Or in some other way, it shows that it's a quote from the Old Testament. This is the New Testament, New Covenant passage, and it's just a direct quote from the Old Testament. Which blows the socks off some people. Like, I'm not a, I'm a, I don't read the Old Testament. Have you ever had this happen? Maybe you've been in this place. Where it's like, I don't read the Old Testament. I'm a New Covenant Christian. You know where you find the New Covenant? The Old Testament. You know where Paul taught the Gospel from? The Old Testament. You know where he taught the New Covenant from? The Old Testament. You know where he preached the prophecies of Christ from? The Old Testament. So here he's, he's, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, we don't have time to get into the whole study, but the Bible never speaks of a covenant made with the Gentiles. It was always made with the house of Israel, and then we become spiritually grafted into Israel. And you look at Romans 9 and 10 and 11 for that, but... Now notice what he goes on to say. He describes the new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the hand to lead them, uh, took them rather by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not... Okay, now notice two things he says here. The problem, there's fault with the covenant. He says that very clearly in, in verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless. Okay, there's a fault with it. Where was the fault? Verse 8, finding fault with them. What was the fault with them? Verse 9, they didn't keep it. Okay, you can't, the, the text is plain as day where the problem was, and it was not the law. And that becomes very clear in the next verse. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Here comes the new covenant, says the Lord. I will put what? <laughs> Which laws is he talking about? And he's quoting from Jeremiah. The very same laws of the old covenant are in the new covenant. Because the problem, you know, when there's something, when you, when you, when something goes wrong and there's a part that isn't working and you've got to make a new whatever, what do you replace? The broken part, the one that doesn't work. What was broken in the old covenant? The people. So you don't go fix the law. The law didn't need fixing. So very in the, in the plainest new covenant passage, it's very clear that the new covenant is based on the same law as the old covenant. And it wouldn't make any sense not to be. There wasn't, what's the problem with, ask somebody, what would be the problem if everybody kept the law of God today? Okay, the argument would be, well, we can't. Okay, but let's just rule that out for a minute. Let's say we could. What would be the problem? <laughs> well, people would be loving their neighbor as themselves, and they'd love God, ultimately and supremely. What an awful thing. <laughs> anyway, so the, the both covenants are based on the law of God. But here God says, I will put my laws in their what? Mind and write them on their hearts. What does that mean? What does the mind refer to? In your thoughts, right? It, it will shape, should the law of God shape a Christian's thoughts? What does that look like? We're, we're just talking about, we're basically we're talking about a moral standard. We're talking about right and wrong. I mean, how does anybody know right and wrong? Everybody has an opinion of right and wrong. And it's very interesting that culture can affect it. If you are in a culture where it doesn't think something that the Bible says is wrong is wrong, um, you can get used to everybody. I mean, it happens in the church. If everybody in the church is doing something that's wrong, but everybody's doing it, it can salve your conscience for a while, for a while. But that conscience is a nasty thing, isn't it? Because that conscience will tell you, even when nobody else is telling you, that something's wrong. And it's not like, why, do, why does, does, does the atheist world share many of the same uh, uh, feelings of what's, it, what's injustice and what's this, that, and the other as a Christian would? Why is death wrong? And why is stealing wrong? And why is lying wrong? And why is... The law of God is the moral standard. And when that's, the more that standard is getting, the lines are getting blurred, well, the, the less people, you, you see more immorality, which we're going to look at in a minute. So, God says, I'm going to put laws in their minds. It's going to shape your thoughts, your behaviors. And in your heart, what does that mean? It's not your... A little bit of motives and... The Bible talks about the heart, it talks about your affections. Your affections. Like, the, as a Christian, don't you want to keep the law of God? This is the thing that baffles me. You're, you're a Christian and you're arguing with me about keeping the law of God. Don't you want to keep the law of God? Isn't that, didn't David say, I delight in thy law? Or I delight to do thy will, O oh my God? Thy law is within my heart. I want you to look at another passage here. We're going to look at two, two more, and then I want to dive into the study. But let's go to Romans chapter... Oh, let's not go to Romans. Let's go to Deuteronomy first. Now, I am skipping for sake of time. As I said, we can't cover everything here. But how many of you remember the account? Let me get you to Deuteronomy first, and we'll hold our fingers there. Um, 
We're going to Deuteronomy 5. And before we read in Deuteronomy 5, how many of you remember reading about the giving of the law at Sinai and the making of the Old Covenant? Have you read that experience before where the people came to Mount Sinai and it was blazing with fire and God's presence came down and the smoke and put a fence around it, don't come near it, anybody who touches the mountain's going to die, etc. And the people trembled and Moses trembled and he was exceedingly, you know, afraid, the Bible says. He, and the mountain quaked greatly and all this. And do you remember what the people said to Moses? You go talk to God. If, if we talk to him, what? We're, we're going to die. You go talk to him and do what? Go get a list from him of what we need to do, and we'll do it. And it's always funny to me, like, this God is so awesome, and if we go in his presence, he's so holy, if we go into his, even go into his presence, we'll die, but we can pretty much pull off anything he asks us to do. Now you'd think that that, in, in fact, I believe that the reason God came down in all that majesty was to try to impress their hearts on how far His holiness was above their unholiness. To impress them with their sense of need for God. Now you'll see that in a minute. But the people said, hey, all the Lord said will do. You go tell Him that, Moses. And again, in Exodus 24, you have the same thing. He goes through and tells them all the commands he heard from God. Not only the Ten Commandments, but he also repeats and recites the um, ordinances and what have you, which are applications of the commandments. And then the people say, and, and they even add, I think it's Exodus 24-7, you go back and tell the Lord all that he has spoken, we will do and be obedient. <laughs> like, not only will we do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it good. We'll be obedient, and you just tell the Lord that. Now, when we talk about the Old Covenant, typically, and I'm not saying this is wrong necessarily, when we make that observation, we read in Hebrews, finding fault with them, and incidentally, we just read in verse 6 of Hebrews 8, that the New Covenant was established on better promises, better than what? Than the promises of the people. And what were the promises of the people? All the Lord said, we will do. And so typically, we talk about the Old Covenant, the fault was with the people and their promises. That they said, all the Lord said, we will do and be obedient. Now, here's my follow-up question. Was it wrong for them to say that? I mean, what's the, what's the alternative? All the Lord said, we're not going to do. Now, there's a third option. That's, that's exactly right. So let's go to Deuteronomy 5. Now, you see this. In Deuteronomy 5, we're recounting God is recounting, Moses is recounting the experience, and the Lord and Moses are recounting this to the people. You'll see uh, this in a moment. Let's start in verse 23, and I may jump around a little bit to a few, but well, uh, Deuteronomy 5.23 says, So it was, when you heard, now Moses is talking to the people of Israel, right before they go into the promised land. So it was, when you heard the voice of from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard the voice, his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. 
If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and live? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say, and tell us all that the Lord our God says to do, and we will hear and what? Do it. Now notice verse 28. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are what? They are right in all they have spoken. So where's the problem? Look at the next verse. Oh, the Lord's still talking. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me always and keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and their children forever. This is such a powerful verse, especially in the context of Old and New Covenant. We know in the New Testament the problem with the Old Covenant was with the people. Right here, God himself says, look, this is the problem. What they said was right. Their intentions were right. And oh, if they would keep my law, what does he say the effect is going to be? That it might be well with them and their children forever. I want them to keep my law. The problem is, they don't realize they need me to do it. They need a new heart. And so when we talk Old Covenant and New Covenant, the issue, the change in the Old and the New is not a change of law, it's a change of heart. And it's so funny. Now, now I want you to think about this. You have one of two options. You probably have more options, but I'm going to distill it to one of two. You have one of two options. When you come to that situation of the law of God, the old covenant, new covenant, whatever, either God's got to change or you've got to change. That's the bottom line. New covenant says we have to change. Salvation says we have to change. But a lot of people don't want to change. And oh, to find an alleged Christianity that lets me stay the same. But let me ask you a question. Oh no, Jesus died, so the law changed. Done away, whatever. If the law changed, who's the lawgiver? Who changed? In that scenario, who's changing? God's changing and I'm staying the same. God forbid that that be my Christianity. (laughs) That I stay the same. And heaven's filled with people like me. No, we want people filled in heaven, heaven to be filled with people like Jesus. People with new hearts, right? So, go with me to Romans chapter 7. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think it's just so, in, in light of this, I mean, this really lies at the core of the whole Sabbath debate, is this understanding of law and grace. Romans 7, verse 14. And this is basically saying what, what I just said in a... In a much more powerful and scriptural way. Verse 14, Romans 7, 14. Paul says, we know that the law is what? The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. From a Bible standpoint, is spiritual good or bad? Is carnal good or bad? Now, Paul, what Paul's saying is, the law is spiritual, but I'm in, I am carnal. Do spiritual and carnal things go together? No. So if you're going to take something spiritual and something carnal and bring them together, what has to happen? Something has to change. 
So are we going to change the carnal thing and make it spiritual? Or are we going to change the spiritual thing and make it carnal? It's one of the two. Which one makes more sense? Do you want to make the spiritual thing carnal? No. Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. This is what Paul says. No, we want to take the carnal thing and make it spiritual. That's salvation, my friends. That's the new birth. That's what it's all about. That's the new heart. That's the problem in Deuteronomy. That's the problem with the covenants. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. It wasn't that God... God doesn't just want them to keep the law. If we don't keep the law of God, we can't... How are we going to abide and dwell in heaven where the law of God is the law of the government of heaven? Like, everybody in heaven still keeps the law of God. And granted, we can't do it in our own strength. So God promises a new heart. And, you know, throughout Scripture, anybody who studies salvation, you see this concept of born again, whatever. This is what the point Paul's making here. The law of God is spiritual. He goes on to say in verse 12, it's holy and just and good. There was never a problem with God's law. Where, who was it who said there was a problem with the law? I mean, and, and I'll tell you something else, and I'm sure it'll get touched on this week because undergirding this whole thing is our great controversy story. And I don't know I don't know of other Christian denominations, I can't say individuals don't, who talk about the great controversy. I've heard some of the smartest and very well respected by myself, people like Dr. Ravi Zacharias, the late Dr. Ravi, anybody know that name? Christian apologists go and talk to on, on secular campuses and other and they reason with people about why I believe in God and, 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 and uh, super, just super intellect. And people say, I don't, you know, college student gets up and he just takes the questions from the audience and listen, just phenomenal. You just check it, R-A-V-I, Ravi Zacharias. Look him up on YouTube. Some fascinating stuff. And other Christian apologists, apologist in a theological term, it's not apologizing for your faith, it's giving, uh, it comes from the Greek word apologia, it means giving a defense. And so a Christian apologist is giving a defense of the Christian faith. And these guys give these great answers, but the questions that come up are, why is there so much evil in the world if God is so good? I mean, that's a very common question. And I've never heard one of these brilliant guys in all their answers give the great controversy as an answer. And we're just like, Seventh Day Adventists, like, well, great controversy? Like, everybody knows a great controversy between good and evil that started in heaven with the devil. Oh, no, they don't. They don't think about it. And so here we are talking about the law of God. Well, you know, the problem is the law of God is just a... If the law of God is a problem, then God should have been smarter in heaven when he thought about making it. Again, nobody's going to say that. Christian would be like, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. When you said the law needs to be done away because we're too weak to keep it, God must have not thought it through. The point is that nothing has ever been wrong with the law. The law is holy and just and good. You'll find that from all the writers of Scripture. The problem is the law is spiritual and we are carnal. And we need, be, we, we need to be made spiritual. Thus the new birth and what have you. And this lies at the foundation of things. Now, I want you to take your hand out and we're going to walk through. That's not the one. I, I, didn't, I didn't get one myself. We have some somewhere here. Okay, law and grace. And again, I'm sorry about the second page. These, the second page deals with some of the uh, objections re uh, about the law of God. 
but the title says how Christ will return. So, and I'm not going to go through all of this. Some things I will spend more time on than others, but I want you to see the flow of thought. And of any Bible study, this is going to take an angle. Every Bible study is going to take some angle to get into the study. This um, reasons from the standpoint of the immorality in society, something people can relate to, okay? Um, there are different approaches you can go. And once you get into the study and you get running, it's the, the flow of thought is going to be, well, you'll see. It's just similarly, just trying to help a person, help clarify the importance of the law of God. And, and really, the issue isn't even so much the law of God, but if we're under grace, where's the law fit into the picture? So I'm just going to, again, just walk through... Um, question number one says, how does the Bible describe the last days? 2 Timothy 3. Does anybody know 2 Timothy 3? In the last days, perilous times will come, right? Men will be lovers of them themselves, boastful, boastful, proud, covetous. All of this, like this big, long laundry list of all these terrible things and the like, Paul says at the end of it. Like if there's something I didn't cover, oh, and stuff like that. So he just talks about this immoral society, even those who have a form of godliness in the context. And you'll see in the italics, it answers the question pretty much, sums it up. How does the Bible describe the last days? It's, uh, it's an immoral time, okay? Self-absorbed, whatever else. But it's really looking at laying the foundation for, it's, it's an immoral culture. And I'm going to tell you that most people who have agreed to study with you, the, the Holy Spirit has awakened in them a sense of need. And one of those first things that comes along with it is, wow, this world is a mess. So people resonate right off. Uh, you might not get somebody on the street who would agree with that, but somebody who says, yeah, I want Bible studies, go, yeah, here it is immoral. Um, question number two, what is the cause of this state of immorality? Deuteronomy 12, 8, Proverbs 21, 2. Somebody look up Proverbs 21, 2 for me, please. We'll look at one of those. Uh, somebody look up Deuteronomy 12, 8, 2. We'll look at that. Go ahead and read that nice and loud. Okay, the Bible talks about people doing what's right in their own eyes. Proverbs 21.2. What's that one say? Who has it? Okay, so that text says people have different standards of right and wrong. Everybody has an idea of what's right, and it's reflected in society, which leads us to number three. Won't my heart tell me the difference between right and wrong? I mean, don't we kind of know? Doesn't everybody know what's right and wrong? Proverbs, um, of course, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then the Lord basically says, I'm the one who knows it. <laughs> Proverbs 14, 12. Love Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Now, I'm going to ask you something, and if you know this, just don't, just don't ruin it for everybody else. But I want those of you in here, if you could please spell the word shop for me. Like a little gift shop. Spell the word shop. Okay, what's the first thing you do when you come to a green light? I've had people fall for that repeatedly, and, and that's what happens when you follow your heart, by the way. It's a great example. People fall for it all the time. 
I mean, how many times, and you can ask a person, how many times have you done what you thought was right, and now at this point in your life, you can think, yeah, that really wasn't so right. And so does our heart always guide us right? No, now the Holy Spirit does work through impressions and what have you, but the reality is, if it's my heart guiding me, is my heart a safe guide? No. So then, number four, how can we know right from wrong? Psalm 119, 172 and I told you, just because of the way we're going through this, I'm telling you what some of the texts are. We may look some of them up, but Psalm 119, 172 says, um, is where David says, all thy commandments are righteousness. Now, righteousness is that theological word, but what's, it word, but what's the root word of righteousness? Right. And so, David says, all thy commandments are righteousness. In other words, God's commandments are Right. They're the standard of right and wrong. That's how we know right and wrong. When we talk about a moral law or a moral standard, that's what we mean, a law by which you know what's right and what's wrong. Because you may say something's right and wrong, and I may say, I don't think it's a problem. And we may have different standards, as in question number two in those passages. So how can we know right from wrong? From God's law. I didn't used to have this one in here, and I realized it's really interesting how many people, in fact, um, there is a show I like, and it's off the air now, but there was a show called The Way of the Master, where, um, I don't know if anybody knows the name Kirk Cameron, he was a Hollywood child actor, and he got converted, and he worked with a guy named Ray Comfort in his ministry, and they put out these this, this show, it's a half-hour show, and, and what they basically did is they would just go around witnessing to people. And um, I'll just leave the short version there. So they, you know, and you got live, the camera follows them, and they're here, there, people in university, people in gangs, people wherever. They're just going up and talking to them and getting into spiritual conversations. Uh, in fact, it was just... <laughs> Uh, Ray Comfort was the stop shop. That's where I heard the stop shop thing. And it's, it's well, I'll say that. Um, but they did, they were at some, I don't know if they were in Vegas or something. And they went around asking people. They had a bunch of young people. In fact, it was, I think this was primarily young people. You know, some kids in their, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 range. And the, the, they cut away, the first question they asked, and then they go from kid to kid to kid to kid to get the answers, was how many of the Ten Commandments can you name? And, you know, maybe one or two or three, you know, just kid after kid after kid after kid. Then they went back through and they said, how many beers can you name? Right? Like Michelob and Heineken and bing, 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 bing. They're all just naming off the beers that don't know a thing about the Ten Commandments. And it's just amazing, an amazing reflection of our society. So I actually added, what are the Ten Commandments? And when I do a study now, we read through the Ten Commandments. There's nothing more convicting for somebody to see the commandments of God in the Word for the first time. Wow, that's in there? <laughs> and, you know, the Bible generally has a little bit more than a lot of the little plaques and other things have on it anyway. So some people have never even read that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, and it that shall do no work down on the son or the daughter, the manservant. They just saw the seventh day is the Sabbath. If you ever see the plaques of the Ten Commandments, I mean, in their defense, it's to try to fit it on there, but it's, it's the Ten Commandments. So, 
What are the Ten Commandments? And then number six, how does the Bible define sin? Um, 1 John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. You may say, well, I've told some people, and they try to argue that it's, it's not the Ten Commandment law. It's the law of Jesus. I don't know if anybody's ever pulled that. You've had that where people pull that with you like there's, Jesus has a law, and it's different from the Father's law, and it's the New Testament law and everything else. So just to clear that whole thing up, Romans 7, 7. Just keep, know these texts. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness or transgression of the law. Law, what law is being violated? Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I would not have known sin except by the law. For, and then he explains, I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. There's no question, scripturally, what's the law we're talking about. It's the law that says, thou shalt not covet, right? So how, what, how does the Bible define sin? Sin is transgression of the Ten Commandments. Breaking the Ten Commandments is sin. Now, I wish it was different for Seventh-day Adventists. But I'm telling you that more and more our church services are singing and fluffy sermons and people don't... Like, if Christians heard <laughs> sin is breaking the law, and you realize that the Sabbath is a law, there's a level of conviction with that. You just don't get it. Like, this is what the Bible defines as sin. But people aren't hearing the word anymore. They're just not. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, I mean, we can praise the Lord. And here at Michigan Camp Meeting, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. But I praise the Lord for the Adventist church, and we, everybody, every church has its challenges, but... We still are a Bible-believing Bible church, denomination. I'm not saying, you know, others claim to be, but it's just, you can talk about it all day long, but you, nobody's preaching it, nobody's teaching it, you're not hearing it, people aren't studying it. The Bible is clear that when we talk about sin, you ask a, a, another Christian, a non-Sabbath-keeping Christian, like, what sin? Are you a sinner? Oh, yeah. I'm a sinner saved by grace. What does it mean to be a sinner? It means you broke the law of God, right? Including the Sabbath. Are you still doing that? Now, for some people, anyway, we'll get back to this. I want to go to this next one, question. What does the Bible say about breaking just one of the commandments, and why? Now, James chapter 2, we, we typically don't ask the why question. So I ask it in here, James chapter 2, verse 10, because the reasoning of James is just fascinating in this uh, context. Again, James is right after the book of Hebrews, right before 1 Peter. James 2, verses 10 and 11. Somebody read that for us, please. James 2, 10 and 11. Okay. How many of you have heard this before, that to break one is like breaking all of them? How many of you had a problem with that? My hand is up. My hand is up. You see this? Like, seriously. Okay, so I stole a candy bar from the store, and some guy went in and mass-murdered people at McDonald's, and we're on the same page? Okay, so that nobody else has ever thought like that? What is James reasoning? Like, 
Like, there are reasons that that doesn't make sense. Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ that there are some sins that are far more grievous in the eyes of God than others. I mean, seriously. Like, we, no, all sin's the same. No, it's not. So that's not what James is saying. What is he saying? What's his reasoning in that next verse? Okay, the same person who said one thing said the other thing. And who was that person? Okay, so where, so when he takes the idea of sin, what's he putting it, what's, what's he, how's he addressing it? You are not just offending, you are, you are disobeying God. And it doesn't matter if you disobey God in this commandment or this commandment. The issue is, the issue isn't which commandment. The issue is you're disobeying God. So like, you know, I obey my mom and dad in most everything, you know, so I should be able to sneak out, take the car, and do it at... No, Jack, don't get that idea in my head. But the idea that James is addressing is the reason why he is saying it's to, to break one is to break all is because the core issue is, are you obeying God or not? Okay, so, number eight, doesn't the Bible teach we can't be saved by keeping the law? Romans 3, 19 and 20. We looked at this earlier. What the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And then it says that, that, that no flesh will be justified in his sight because by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now this is just building on that whole moral the moral foundation we talked about earlier. How do you know right from wrong? All the commandments are righteousness. Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin except the law that said thou shalt not covet. And here he says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. How do I know I'm doing wrong? How do I know I'm transgressing the law if there's no law to transgress? So all of these, these texts are simply telling us the purpose of the law is to point out sin. Right? Doesn't the Bible say we can't be saved by keeping the law? Absolutely. Nobody could ever be saved by keeping the law. God never gave the law so people could be saved by keeping it. That wasn't the reason in giving it. And I'll explain that further in a moment. Number nine, if the law is the standard of right and wrong, why can't keeping it save us? Romans 7.14, we looked at. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Why can't keeping it save me? Because a carnal person can't keep a spiritual law until he or she becomes a spiritual person. Are you following that? And Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. In fact, look this one up. Romans 8, 7. Do you have it? The carnal mind, New King James says, is enmity. I know you want to say enmity. But it's enmity. And it's actually a word, obviously, we don't use too much. It comes from where we get our word enemy, and it means hostility. It's a hostility. And in fact, some translations will say it's hostility against God. The carnal mind is hostile toward God. Don't miss the rest of the verse. The carnal mind is enmity or hostile toward God. And then it goes on to say, it is not subject to God's law with the rest. Nor indeed can be. Not only is the carnal mind, the natural mind, the sinner's mind, able to be subjected, obedient to God's law, 
Not only is it not obedient, it can't be obedient. It has to be changed. Thus conversion. Are you following that? The carnal mind is enmity. Now don't, don't miss this. The carnal mind is enmity because it's not subject to the law of God. If, if, if my mind, if, I, if, my, if I'm hostile toward God, and the apostle Paul explains that the core reason of that hostility is because I don't obey the law, what does that say about the law? Is it good or bad? I mean, again, these are passages where the Christian world doesn't process them, by and large. Oh, Paul did away with it. Paul says the law is not important. Where are you getting that from? You're not reading the same apostle I am. Very clearly here, like this is the reason that the carnal mind, how do we know the carnal mind is, is hostile towards God? Because it doesn't keep the law of God. Okay, let's talk rebellion for a minute. You know, okay, I have a rebellious kid. I'm making it up. My daughter, if you here, should be saying that. Well, sometimes you do. But anyway, I say I have a rebellious kid. What does that mean? You say, ah, oh, my teenager's rebellious. What does that mean? What does rebellious mean? Okay. Always, what does rebellious mean? Do his own thing, disobeying what? <laughs> the law, right? The law of the house, whatever it is. In other words, rebellion is disobedience to law. That's what it is. When you disobey law, that's rebellion. So we talk about it as Christians. We're like, oh, rebellion and the rebellious heart and carnal heart and Satan rebelled in heaven. What did he do? He violated the law of God. I mean, all of these things should speak to the Christian to say that the law of God is super important because your other alternative is rebellion. Yes, sir? I was going to say, doesn't Paul say in Corinthians that all things are lawful for him? Yes. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Um, and that's a great example of a... <laughs> I mean, what did he mean by that? In other words, if, if I want to take that, would I read into that text to say, Paul wanted to go up and put a gun to somebody's head and shoot him, it was lawful. Do you think Paul would be like, yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. No, so we know, we already know, like there's certain things like, so he, he obviously wasn't talking about everything, but there's a context in which he's addressing things that maybe there are some liberties to be taken. And we, we may flesh that out a little bit as we go on. So law is the standard of right and wrong. Um, does the Bible uh, teach we can't... I'm going to go back to that one. Does the Bible teach we can't be saved by keeping the law? Now, my, in our first church, my wife and I had some friends who went to Australia, and they, and they came back, and they brought us a gift. And it was this beautiful um, glazed fruit, fruit bowl. It was a bowl. We used it as a fruit bowl. Anyway, sitting there in our kitchen, all our fruit in it, and... and, and I'm going to give you a scenario that I made up for illustrative purposes. I need to tell you that. Okay? I've been married for 35 years. I don't know everything about marriage, but after 35 years, I know that what I'm about to tell you is something I would never do. But I'm, I do it in the illustration. So, you, you know, you're like, this guy's an idiot. So I want you to imagine that I'm walking, now, now in, 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 uh, in the house we're staying in now, the garage is right off the kitchen. So let's say I go through the kitchen. Look at that fruit bowl. 
I turn it over gently, lay the fruit out on the counter, take a bowl, and I head out to the garage. And my wife says, hold on a minute, what are you doing? I'm just going out to the garage, honey, I'll be back in a minute. What are you doing with a fruit bowl? Just go on, I told you I'd be back in a minute. What are you going to do with it? Look, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to drain the oil out of the car. All right, I need something. I'll, hey, I'll wipe it out. I'll wash it out. I'll use Dawn. It takes grease out of the way. And I'll come back and I'll put it back. And, be... and let's just imagine this scenario takes place. My wife's like, oh, no, you don't. You're not taking that dish out and changing the oil. You find something else. And, and so I get a little snarky and I say, are you telling me that I can't use this thing to change my oil? And she says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Now imagine that my response is, that I take it and I chuck it in the trash can, I say, well, what good is it then? The thing's worthless, it's good for nothing. Which I did not do. It would not do. Or I'd be telling a story about my ex-wife. So, no, she's kind and forgiving, but it would not be something I would do. Now, it's unre it would be unreasonable, wouldn't it? Really be stupid to do that. Unreasonable for many reasons. But the obvious reason is why. What good is it? It doesn't serve any purpose. Is that true? There's all kinds of purposes it serves. It just isn't for changing the oil, right? What has happened in the Christian world is that for many Christians, when they read in the Bible and they learn that the law cannot justify a person, they say, well, what good is it? And they chuck it in the trash can. You hear what I'm saying? Does the law of God serve a purpose? What does the Bible say the purpose is? By the law is the knowledge of sin. That's a great purpose. But it's not for justification. So, oh, we can't be justified by the law. Let's get rid of it. Well, hold on a minute. We could never be justified by the law. They weren't justified by the law in the Old Testament. We're not just, God never gave the law to say, here's my law, I'll keep it and be justified. That wasn't ever his purpose. He always knew man's heart needed to be changed. And it's important for us to know, like, this is... Where God is coming from, the law serves an excellent purpose. But we can't go and try to come up with a different purpose and then say, well, this is the purpose I'm going to use it for, and if I can't use it for that, I'm just going to get rid of it. It would be foolish, wouldn't it? So, thus the question in number eight. And I give that illustration. When I'm giving the study, I give that. You could come up with something similar to that. I just give that illustration. It hits home. Yeah, I get that. that. The law has a purpose. By the law is knowledge of sin. Does it teach that we can't be saved by keeping? Yeah, of course it does. Of course the Bible teaches. Like some people will tell me that when I'm talking about the Sabbath. They're like, listen, Pastor, I know you're Sabbath people, but listen, we can't be saved by keeping the law. Like, I'm going to go, really? Oh, man. I never read that before. So, I like to just head that off. At the no, I, I understand that. Uh, the law is not for that purpose. It was never for that purpose. If the law is a standard of right and wrong, why can't keeping it save us? Because we're carnal. And we need to be, become spiritual. Number 10, what does the Bible compare the law to? James 1, 23 to 25. This is where James talks about a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he saw. And then he compares that to looking into the perfect law of liberty. It's really a great verse. Again, just 
these are verses that what they're doing when you're studying with somebody, they're helping them to understand the purpose of the law. When you understand the purpose of the law, it makes sense. It's like, all they think is, well, you think you're going to be saved by keeping the law. No. The law is given for this reason and this reason. Oh, that makes sense. So, for example, James compares the law to a mirror. And I'll, you, you'll have a similar story to this that you could perhaps share. But I had a neighbor who, who moved in across the street from one of the places I lived. And I was out, in my, out working on my car. And if you've ever done anything working on a car or something, you know that your hands get really dirty. And if it's a hot day and there's bugs and, you know, you had an itch or whatever else, what's happening all the time now? So I've got this guy, this is my first meeting with this neighbor. He comes over and I see him coming, so I get up and I chat with him and, you know, I, I stop working. And so um, after we're done chatting, I figure, well, I've got, I may as well go get a drink, go use the restroom right before I get back at it. Go into the bathroom and I look in the mirror, what do I see? A war paint. I'm just like, oh, this grease. And I'm thinking, oh, perfect. Perfect. Like first impression, perfect. Um, so what do you think I did? I, I, you know, I saw the grease on my face, and I went up to the mirror, and I tried to wipe it off on the mirror, right? Again, ridiculous. Like nobody would do that. Well, the, I, the mirror showed me the dirt, right? So the mirror's going to take it off. No, I got something else to take it off. By the law is the knowledge of sin. James describes the law like a mirror. The law shows you in that reflection the dirt. But is the law what takes the dirt off? No. And if you use the law lawfully, as he says to Timothy, there's no problem with that. And so, uh, number 10 is again just showing what the biblical explanation of the purpose of the law is. And it's not for salvation. Number 12, when the law reveals our sin, who does it point us to for cleansing? Galatians 3.24 says the law is our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ, that we may be justified by the law, justified by faith. I mean, just an excellent verse. Now, verse 25 is a kicker, and I'm going to have to come back to that in just a moment, because um, we're not looking at it right now. I'm just looking at the, the, the text here, but uh, who does the law point us to? It points us to Jesus. That Listen. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. Why do I go to Jesus? Why did you come to Jesus? Why did you give your life to Jesus? Somebody want to say? You need a Savior from? How did you know about your sin? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. I mean, you understand what happens when you try to take the law out of the picture. Why, why go to Jesus? There's nothing that... When a person's conscience is stirred that they have broken the law of God, and now they're guilty of that, and the penalty is death, that, that motivates. i got to find a way out of this. And that only way out is Jesus. In fact, that Galatians passage is, is talking about just that. Number 13, doesn't faith do away with the need to obey God's law? Romans 3.31, that's where Paul says, do we make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. That's just... These are just passages that when you're studying with somebody who's never looked at this before, it, you know, that's in their mindset. That's what they're thinking. That's what their pastor told them. Well, faith, we believe in, we're a new covenant Christian. We have faith in Jesus, so we don't need the law. And, you know, imagine 
with that mindset, reading a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul says, are we making void the law? That's exactly what they heard. Yes, we are making void the law. And then Paul says, God forbid. <laughs> Wait a minute. I mean, I thought we were. We do make void the law through faith, don't we? And so it just is trying to establish that the, the, the law is holy, just, and good. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with our hearts. Number 14, doesn't the Bible teach that once we find grace, we are no longer under the law? Yes, it does. In Romans chapter 6, let's look at that quickly. I don't want to assume here. Some of these are just like, these are the, they're like a few main texts. And this is probably the most common text that a person gives when, they're, when, they, cut, when they want to get around the law. So the Bible says in Romans 6.14, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, you know how people read that? When you're under grace, you don't need to worry about keeping the law. That's how they interpret that, without ever thinking about what the Bible says. Okay? So let's see what the Bible says. In that verse, what is sin? We've already studied it. What does the Bible say sin is? Transgression of law. Can we call it law-breaking? Let's call it law-breaking, right? Transgression, breaking God's law. Can we do that? Is that fair? So we're going we're gonna to read the definition into it. Force, so he says in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Law-breaking shall not have dominion over you. What does dominion mean? What does it mean for somebody to have dominion over you? They rule you. They're in charge of you. They tell you what to do. You're their slave, right? So in the first part of the passage... It's talking about being a slave to sin. And it says sin or law-breaking. Law-breaking shall no longer rule your life. Because you're not under law, but under grace. Now that under law is what throws us. Because we have been programmed to think that not to be under the law means to have to keep the law. But that's not what the scripture, how the scripture uses it. The phrase in scripture, under the law means seeking justification by obedience to the law. It doesn't mean keeping the law. It doesn't mean trying to keep the importance. It's talking about to, for somebody to be under the law is for somebody to be seeking salvation by their commandment keeping. And what happens if I try to be saved by my commandment keeping? Well, it's not only it's legalism. What if I try? It's impossible. You've read where James says, can a... Can a fountain bring forth both pure and, and, and uh, bitter water from the same place? No, <laughs> right? Can, can you bring a clean thing out of an unclean, Job says? If you've, got a, if you've got a carnal heart, an impure heart, everything you try to do good is going to come out how? Bad, because the source is bad, you understand? So if I'm trying to save myself by my, my best good works, they're all going to be, they're all going to come short. And sin will have dominion. It'll rule my life. I mean, I'm not going to ask you, but I guarantee there are those of you in this room who before you came to Christ, tried and tried and tried. In fact, I know a lady who came to a, an evangelistic series we had. She smoked since she was 11 years old. She was 60. When she came to the meeting, she was 71. She'd been smoking for 60 years. She had tried to quit multiple times. 
So she comes to this evangelistic series. And she's learning about Jesus and what he can do in her life. And in conjunction with that series, we had a stop smoking class. She came to the first night, and then she stopped. And I was so disappointed. I was like, oh, you know, it was, she felt she couldn't do it. That, that's what I told myself. I visited with her a few days later, like Thursday. We started it on Monday. I visited with her on Thursday, and I said, yeah, I said, what do you think of the class? She said, oh, I quit. I said, I know, I mean, was it too much? She says, no, I quit smoking. I haven't smoked for four days. She never smoked a cigarette again in her life. Like, she had tried before. What made the difference? Christ made the difference. I mean, it's just, it's so powerful. The idea, so the, what Paul's saying here is, when you're under grace, when the grace of Christ comes into your life, sin will no longer have control over you. The sin that so masters us doesn't master us. But if I'm trying in my own strength, that's what it means to be under the law, seeking justification by my, my own goodness, I'm always going to fail. But when the grace of God comes in my... It's not that I don't seek to obey God anymore, which you're going to see in a minute, but the grace of God empowers us to do the right thing. And so even the passage itself, if you just break it down, Paul says law-breaking, when you're under grace, law-breaking won't rule your life. Well, what's the alternative? Law-keeping. People under the law... Uh, people... <laughs> under the law. People keep the law of God by grace. Under law means you're trying to seek uh, to obey in your own strength, which explains the next verse, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? God forbid, is what it says in the King James. Certainly not. But, but even in the, in the passage itself, it's clear if you just look at the text itself that he's not saying it's not important to keep the law anymore. It's trying to be saved by keeping the law is what it means to be under the law, under the dominion of, under the dominion of sin, pretty much, is what he's talking about. Um, number 15, what is the purpose of God's grace? Somebody read that for us. He was 1228. What is the purpose of God's grace? Is it to keep us from, we don't have to obey anymore because we're under grace, we don't have to worry about it. Hebrews 12.28, he wants to read that. Okay, why is grace given, according to that verse? For us to stop serving God because we can't do it, it's too, it's too much for us, it's too hard for us, or that we may what? Serve God acceptably. Like grace is given to enable us, empower us to serve God. I've got people, I've had people say, oh, listen, I, I, I'm, I've, Jesus made me free from the law. I don't have to keep it anymore. And my response to that is this. I lived without Christ many years, and I was free from the law. I mean, I didn't have to keep any commandment. I did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, except one thing. There's one thing I couldn't do. You know what it was? I couldn't serve Christ. I couldn't serve him. Carnal heart can't serve a holy God. So people talk about, oh, the Bible says we're free in Christ. Yeah, but what's the freedom? It's freedom in Christ, not freedom from Christ. The freedom is, I'm finally free to serve him. Instead of to rebel against him and break his law. I mean, this is the freedom that's being talked about. So this is what 
the apostle calls the purpose of grace in Hebrews 12, 28. How should it, number 16, how should a born-again Christian feel about God's law? This is where David says in Psalm 40 and verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And I love to ask a person, like, okay, a person says, we're not saved by the law. I agree with that. But here's my follow-up question. How does a saved person feel about the law? Let's stop talking about how to get saved. Now that we are saved, and you've accepted Jesus, how should saved people feel about God's law? <laughs> oh, let's get rid of it. That doesn't seem right, does it? No, I delight in to do thy will. Thy law is within my heart. Number 17, did Jesus ever teach that the law would be changed or done away with? That heaven and earth would pass away before the law would pass away. Not one jot or tittle. That a jot is, a, is, is like the crossing of a T, a, or a, a dot, and a, and a tittle is like a crossing of a T, the dotting of an I, like the smallest little part of it. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. And uh, number 18, what is a genuine test of knowing God? Let's look at this one. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. I mean, this is just, you couldn't get plainer than human language here. 1 John chapter, what did I say? 2, 3 through 5. I think I said 3, 2 through 5. 2, 3 through 5. Are you going to read that for us? Yes. What a powerful verse. How do we know what's the evidence that we're in God? We keep his commandments. I mean, you couldn't get, human language doesn't get plainer than that. And it only makes sense that you would want to keep his commandments. Again, I've had, I've had people challenge this, you know, the idea of, oh, being free in Jesus is like, oh, I just, you know, what a relief. Some people have told me, I accepted Jesus to realize you don't have to keep the commandments. I can't help but thinking of it, again, being married for 35 years, somebody coming up and telling me, listen, you don't have to, you don't have to try to please your wife anymore. You can't do that. She's impossible to please. You're too weak to do it. Just know, just, just, just rejoice in that freedom that you don't ever have to do anything to please her again. You think that's going to make me happy? Why? <laughs> right. It's not going to make her happy. And that's not going to be because I want to please my wife. You understand what I'm saying? Doesn't a Christian want to please God like? Where is this? What kind of Christianity do you have? What kind of love for Christ do you have that says, Oh, good, I don't have to obey you anymore. Because it was so hard. I mean, it, the, the desire of the Christian is to live a new kind of life. The frustration comes in not being able to live it. And so what God does through the gospel is enable you to live it. And that doesn't mean we don't struggle. and we not, But the idea is the joy... I find joy in being able to do the will of God. I find joy in being able to live a different kind of life than the selfish, self-absorbed life I used to live and sometimes now live. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I mean, there's something wrong with the Christianity that gets us out of being Christians. What is a genuine test of knowing God? Keeping His commandments. In Revelation 14, the question is, in Revelation's final call, 
to a planet rapidly disintegrating into lawlessness, because we started out with the idea of morality, how does God describe his people in the last days? I mean, if there was no other text in the Bible, like we zero in on the last days, most people look at the world today and say, we've got to be living in the last days. So we go to Revelation 14, 12, and God describes the people at the end of time, and he says, here are those who keep what? And this, for the people who say, yeah, well, when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, he was talking about different commandments because there's Jesus' commandments and God's commandments. You can't go there. First of all, that's not true. But you can't go there in Revelation 14, 12 because they keep the commandments of God and, and, and I've had some people say, well, that's because at the end of, these are the Jews at the end of time. I've actually had people say that because they keep the commandments. Oh, except for, and have faith in Jesus. And it ties those things together. Like God says, if you're going to find my people at the end of time, they're going to be the people who keep the commandments. Right? The only one who's ever fought against the commandments is the devil. And he's been doing it all the way through. And you've got to realize that when you find yourself fighting against the commandments, you got on the wrong side. And so, of course, out of this grows the Sabbath, which we're going to talk about after our break. So we're going to take a break until 25 after. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.